Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Later in this edition of Eco Report, we have part two of environmental correspondent Zero Rose's interview with Jamie Scholl of Resilience, a permaculture health consultancy growing nutraceuticals in Bloomington. And now for your environmental reports. In a new record solar and wind Grant generated more electricity nationally than coal for the first five months of 2023. Though Indiana participates little in the effort, other states are surging ahead. From a production cost perspective, renewables, wind and solar, are the cheapest thing to use. So we're going to see more and more of these records, said Ram Rajagopal, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University as reported by CBS News. As recently as 2008, nearly half of the country's electricity was generated by coal, but it has has been declining steadily ever since, replaced by renewables and natural gas, Environmental and Energy News reported. As electricity providers generate more electricity from renewable sources, we see electricity generated from coal decline over the next year and a half. Energy Information Agency, or EIA, Administrator Joe DeCarolis said in May, according to a press release, we expect that the United States will generate less electricity from coal this year than in any year this century. Coal reached a record high globally globally last year due to the increase in natural gas prices following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but its resurgence did not last. An additional 22.5 gigawatts of solar and wind capacity were added in the past year, ending in May, an EIA report from earlier this month said. Ending coal generation once and for all can only do good things for the climate. Though it comprises around one-fifth of the energy grid, coal use makes up more than half of the greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, according to data from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The expansion of renewables has been given a boost by the Inflation Reduction Act, but getting green power sources hooked up to the U.S. electrical grid has been a tedious process. According to a Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory report, On average, a renewables project that came online last year had waited five years between its request to connect to the grid and the start of its commercial operations. Between 2000 and 2007, the wait was less than two years. According to the report, 1,350 gigawatts of capacity from more than 10,000 projects are waiting to be connected to the grid. 
most of them renewables. Wind and solar make only 10% of Indiana's power generation. This places our state in the lowest third of all states. The Biden administration is proposing new rules for protecting imperiled plants and animals that would reverse changes under former President Donald Trump that weakened the Endangered Species Act. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service plans to reinstate a decades-old regulation that mandates protections for species that are newly classified as threatened. That measure was dropped under Trump as part of a suite of changes to the species law that was encouraged by industry. Under the proposal, officials also would drop consideration of economic impacts when deciding if animals and plants need protection. Another change would expand requirements for federal agencies to consult with the Wildlife Service or the National Marine Fisheries Service before taking actions that could affect threatened or endangered species. Under Trump, officials rolled back endangered species rules and protections for the northern spotted owl, gray wolves, and other species. It will take months for Wednesday's proposal to be finalized. The Biden administration had earlier reversed Trump's decision to weaken enforcement of the century-old Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which made it harder to prosecute bird deaths caused by the energy industry. Officials under Biden also withdrew a 2020 rule that limited which lands and waters could be designated as places where imperiled animals and plants could receive federal protection. Industry groups and Republicans in Congress have long viewed the Endangered Species Act as an impediment to economic development, and under Trump, they successfully lobbied to weaken the law's regulations. This in spite of a drop in many bird and amphibian populations by 30% over the last 25 years. Also, we are now in the sixth mass extinction, which is projected to extinguish at least a million species of plants and animals. In order to make progress on electric power, the country's largest grid operator must process and connect backlogged clean energy projects, a new report says. Inside Climate Change developed the story. Virginia, Illinois, Ohio, and Indiana have the most to gain in jobs and new investment if PJM, the country's largest grid operator, can fix some of the problems now leading to long delays in clean energy projects, a new report says. To make that happen, PJM would need to approve projects at the same rate it did about a decade ago. Illinois, Ohio, and Indiana rank second, third, and fourth in potential benefits for proposed projects. Each state stands to gain between $4.7 billion and $5.5 billion in capital investments and roughly $29,000 to $32,000 in job years, with other states in the grid footprint gaining smaller amounts of investments and jobs. Additional grid-wide benefits would include an estimated reduction in wholesale electricity cost of more than 16 per megawatt hour from 2021 levels due to an increase in renewable energy on the grid and incentives from the Inflation Reduction Act, the report said, citing a December 2022 analysis by Princeton University researchers. Displaced coal generation could also provide substantial public health benefits valued at roughly 44 per megawatt hour, $44 per megawatt hour, the report said. 
For the first time since 2016, El Nino conditions are brewing in the tropical Pacific Ocean, which means the world is likely in store for rising temperatures and an increase in extreme weather, the United Nations World Meteorological Organization reported in a press release. The last major El Nino event was the hottest year ever recorded. The WMO says there is a 90% likelihood that El Nino will continue to the end of this year at at least moderate strength. Quote, the onset of El Nino will greatly increase the likelihood of breaking temperature records and triggering more extreme heat in many parts of the world and in the ocean, end quote, said WMO Secretary General Professor Pateri Tallis in the press release. The declaration of an El Nino by WMO is the signal to governments around the world to mobilize preparations to limit the impacts on our health, our ecosystems, and our economies. Early warnings and anticipatory action of extreme weather events associated with this major climate phenomenon are vital to save lives and livelihoods. We should expect increased food insecurity and malnutrition in addition to wildfires, extreme heat, and likely surges in cholera and infectious and mosquito-borne diseases like measles and malaria. El Nino can cause increased rainfall in the southern United States, South America, Central Asia, and the Horn of Africa while bringing severe drought conditions to parts of southern Asia, Indonesia, Australia, the northern portion of South America, and Central America. Its warm waters can also add fuel to hurricanes in the Pacific while dampening the formation of hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin. And now we go to Zero Rose with part two of his interview with Jamie Scholl, where they explore policy impediments and potential improvements in urban agriculture and local food production for renters and homeowners inside and near city limits. The full interview will become available as an eco-report extra posted on the WFHB website, wfhb.org. This is part of sustainability. It's not just electricity. It's not just a grid. Amish live and other people, they choose to live without electricity. It's a different lifestyle. But we need water. We need food. We need shelter. So if we're looking just at the electrical grid, and solar panels and such as uh, sustainability, we're really missing some of the basics and it needs to be caught up. And this is where the urban agriculture amendment to the unified development ordinance way back when was important. Has that uh, really been implemented or do you think there needs to be more institutional advancement of kind of ruralizing the city, you know, some of the earliest cities, they had integrated the farming into the walls of the city. It was kind of protection against siege. And then there were some garden cities planned in the Midwest, kind of some of the things even before some of the sewer socialists and such who were doing infrastructure projects. It's kind of populist projects and everything. Some people really seem dispositionally opposed to greening the city. It's to be sterile and rectilinear and plants know their place. They're apportioned into little spaces like little topiaries and things. That's really different than creating a canopy where there's grazing. It's another thing that kind of rubs people wrong. The idea that there'd be free food hanging everywhere as you walk around when they think of them as trash trees that are 
dropping debris and things. I mean, there's a there's a mindset cultural thing there, and then there's an institutional component of fostering fostering that. And do you think that's happening enough? Well, you brought up a number of different things that could be unpacked for sure and are have been and are on my mind as well um is the city doing enough organization no absolutely not we could have these streets lined with different types of trees that provide food for people who's going to harvest it well that's something that could be looked at as well, this is a problem to be solved. This is an opportunity. Problems, if you look at this from a, um, a um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial viewpoint, a problem is an opportunity. So if we're having this problem, we should look at it as an opportunity. If put in these trees, oh my, the persimmons are dropping on here, This, uh, the pawpaws, the hazelnuts, the whatever it is we're going to have there and sometimes they're already there as part of the natural environment why is there not possibly a nonprofit formed to take care of this why would the city not look at this as part of uh you know an opportunity to have a department as a part of i don't know maybe parks i am not i don't know where it would be best fit i really don't but there are opportunities there that we could look at for that. Um, I understand some people want to live in the city versus in the country. And there are locations, as you mentioned, um, in this nation and in others that have that. And then others have pockets, as you'd mentioned, like a topiary. Um, even, uh, you know, Paris has that because I've been to Paris and I've seen these locations and some in other areas in England. And that can fit in the denser cities to have the gardens and community gardens or allotments nearby so that people can um, go there for their mental health as well. But, you know, there's it, it's a community decision. Now, how to zone this is something else. And we've looked at, you know, uh, the city council has looked at annexation. And one of the things with these kind of um, checkerboard areas uh, on the near nearer west side that people are saying, oh, we need to annex those. And those used to be farms. Why would we want to continually bring and truck in the local produce from an hour and a half away if we can just simply keep that as it is and encourage agriculture right there that could be, I remember seeing horse there. We could bring carton food on many horses down to the city markets. Um, you know, depending upon where these locations are, because we, we may not want to think about one blanket solution for everything, but to zone something as part of the city and then say, we're going to increase your taxes when farmers are struggling now does not make sense. I mean, I 
I know at one point in water and soil conservation, they have an or urban ag uh, person that came in with grants and she was not a, uh, allowed to help me living within the city limits, even though it's urban ag, because of at that time, I don't know if it's changed, there was no funding from the city for that person's position. So therefore she was not serving in town. So there's different things within um, city government itself and where our dollars are going and not. And I'm not sure how much of this has to do with the administration, whoever is going to be in the office and who is in office now and where those decisions are made. That's kind of a blank to me, but you know, there's different ways to approach this and, and to identify each specific issue and to find solutions and really not think that it's a blanket solution for the entire area, but to see this as part of uh, sustainability. And I believe there's been some problems that people have had with, what is it, homeowners associations that Oh, will even kind of banish people for trying to garden in their yards or even kind of just come uh, in and bulldoze their stuff down and have all these regulations to completely discourage gardening as something that brings down the property value. Yeah, and this is where, uh, believe it or not, uh, aesthetics can come into play. Because a lot of people want to simply plant row crops in the front yard and to make a statement. Um, and to them, it's a moral imperative. And I understand that. I also understand from uh, the perspective of lowering property values because it can also do that. And there is an art project, um, the artist came and spoke here and they would install these edible gardens in people's yards and then just leave them and it would become an eyesore may attract rats and mice and whatever else which then did lower the property value for the others in the neighborhood um so there's if you're doing it from a more organized and uh perspective rather than a wild perspective such as kitchen gardens and the potager those are designed and rather than simply placing these crops there, it can be designed to be a permanent landscape feature, uh, just like any other landscaping that someone would do with rocks and trees and you know your annuals. They're just going to be possibly producing food. There'll be flowers, herbs, all of these benefits, but that's where um, keeping the thought in aesthetics as important to uh, urban agriculture, it's often overlooked and or saying uh, that one person's aesthetic is not the same as another's. And so therefore we cannot touch this issue. Well, I think we need to touch the issue. And uh, I've heard of uh, community gardening programs, I think in Belgium to where Instead of like, okay, you get a plot in the park that you can rent, that mm -hmm. they actually set up gardens in people's yards, that that's their community garden problem or program is that they go and install, presumably maybe with some of these layering techniques from low to high, 
mm-hmm. to to kind of make it look better as a garden room mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. Um, and that, I guess that could be organizations or businesses or the city that would kind of facilitate that type of thing. But of course, that's based on owning the property. And then you have the whole situation of people that are renting that are not allowed to garden or places that have been built with no design for even a back stoop or anything like that. And again, regulations against it for tenants that are renting. And so that's kind of why you need the parks type as as some other node, hopefully not too far away from where these people live. And uh, I mean, are you running into that with your consultancy situation? So this is a good tie in to what I didn't fully answer before with the aesthetics. And that is like with HOAs as well. HOAs are actually nonprofits. They normally have three board members and some of it's a boilerplate type of thing that often governs um, no food growing in the front yard or within so many feet. Um, this is not great for that. And I, I do know some, some folks who have opted to leave rather than litigate. Um, because some other things with trying to stop someone from growing food plants, because there are or- ornamentals that are edible as well, whether that's a cabbage or some things that are beautiful, cherry trees that we see in Washington, D.C., espaliers are spectacular too. Um, So that's kind of the homeowners association. There are a lot of them. So when we look at um, homes, uh, property being owned where you could do this, that percentage, I did look it up at one point. I don't remember how many, um, but it has grown in the city of people who could not be self-sufficient if they wanted to because of homeowner association rules. And if that were just rewritten for to include aesthetics instead of saying all food plants, then that could remedy that situation. Um, home uh, ownership versus rentals. So that that one um, that depends on the type of rental. We're seeing how uh, these large buildings are being uh, approved, uh, come out of planning, the planning department, they get approved by city council, and then um, something changes along the way. But to see that these things may have been approved uh, with these items, such as for you know a certain percentage for families and for um, for gardens to be there, uh, whether that's going to be used for mental health, for food growing, whether it's going to be in the soil itself or rooftop gardens, it's being removed outside the public eye. This is In Nature. Eastern box turtles, or Terrapina carolina carolina, were in the recent past a common terrestrial turtle in the eastern United States. However, now this species is considered of special concern because of loss of habitat and because these turtles are often sold in the pet trade. It is against the law in Indiana to take a turtle from the wild. 
Eastern box turtles prefer moist, deciduous, or mixed bottomland forests and use shallow streams to cool off during warm weather. If the weather is particularly hot, the turtles will also submerge themselves in wet mud. Box turtles have a hinge on the bottom shell or plastron and have a high domed upper shell or carapace. They can pull their heads and limbs into their shell and tightly close it, foiling predators. Their shell coloration is brown with a pattern of yellowish or orange radiating lines or spots. The males have red eyes and a plastron that is concave, allowing him purchase when he climbs on top of the female to inseminate her. The female has brown eyes and a flat plastron. Box turtles can live for 50 to 100 years and do not breed until they are about 10 years old. Once inseminated, the female can store viable sperm for up to four days. She lays her eggs in the soil from mid-May to early June and the sun incubates them. A variety of predators feast on the eggs. Adding to their vulnerability, young turtles are unable to close the hinge of their shells until they are four or five years old. Eastern box turtles are omnivorous, eating fruit, earthworms, slugs, small insects, rotting meat, mushrooms, flowers, and berries. Because of their low metabolism, if food is not available, they can retreat into their shells and can wait until conditions are more favorable. Box turtles overwinter by digging into the soil, going deeper as the winter breaks. Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Learn the secrets of sinkholes at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, July 15th at 3.30 p.m. Explore geological features on this Trail 9 hike, learning about sinkholes, erosion features, and geology. Meet in the Deer Run parking area. Enjoy a glow-in-the-dark paddle at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve on Saturday, July 15th from 9.30 to 11 p.m. You will have glow sticks to illuminate your boat and paddle as you learn about nocturnal wildlife. You should have some paddling experience. Register at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. An activity on birding for beginners is taking place at Spring Mill State Park on Thursday, July 20th from 10 to 11 a.m. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center to identify and view some of the birds commonly found in the park. Sycamore Land Trust is having a Preserve a Preserve Volunteer Weed Wrangle at Downey Hill, which is part of the Laura Hare Nature Preserve on Friday, July 21st from 9 to 10.30 a.m., this gives you an opportunity to learn how to identify and control invasive plants. Special guest speaker David Rupp, owner and guide for Indigo Birding Nature Tours, will be at Wild Birds Unlimited in Bloomington on Saturday, July 22nd at 4 p.m. He will give a presentation on understanding bird migration. 
And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noel Noel Husky Snyder. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Kate Young and Noel Husky Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.